Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on this week's program, Ms. Faye Flam will join us to discuss male sexuality. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And your world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, the popular saying goes that it's love that makes the world go round. But if truth be told, it's probably sex that is the real prime mover. More importantly, the gender distinctions in sexual behavior may have led to the sometimes baffling culture that surrounds us. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Ms. Faye Flam. Ms. Flam is the noted author and journalist whose work has appeared in Science, The Economist, and in syndicated news release. Her column, Carnal Knowledge, was nominated for the coveted Pulitzer Prize. Her new book, The Score, How the Quest for Sex Has Shaped Modern Man explores this issue for a general audience. And Ms. Flynn, we want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks, Charles. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and I think this is really a, a very fascinating and certainly carnal type of book. <laughs> it is. It, well, it's also a popularized science book. I kind of combined, I thought, two things. One that people always find interesting, and the other that should be interesting to everybody. And we certainly hope, otherwise the human race might just peter out and die. <laughs> <laughs> well, so certainly in, in their past biography here, it says you went to Caltech, and being an alum of that illustrious institution myself, I'm curious if having gone to that institution where a ratio is five to one, if that really brought home the point of the differences between male and women. It did a bit. Actually, I was there probably earlier than you when it was eight to one, so <laughs> oh, hopefully that won't give away my age, but it was it was even worse then, or better, depending on which side you're on. And in a way, it did, because I think some of these differences in behavior are more pronounced when people are young, and often when women are least equipped to be able to deal with it. So, yes, there were definitely big differences in the way that men and women, especially, approach dating and sex. Mm. Early in the book, you talk about this camp for pickup artists, certainly something that maybe a lot of the techers might be. benefit <laughs> <laughs> from it, yes. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of used that to illustrate some points in the book. I just thought it would be interesting to, to watch one of those classes. And it seemed like it illustrated one kind of key uh, sex difference, which has to do with attitudes towards sex and the fact that men would actually pay a lot of money to take a class just to get women into bed not necessarily to get happy, wonderful, long-term relationship with them, but just to get the sex part. And as a woman, I found that kind of amazing and interesting and wanted to find out a little bit more about that. So what do you think this says really about the male psyche or biology? Well, I think that there are some differences in that even though both sexes can have a lot of sex drive or not, there's a lot of, of variety out there, but sort of over evolutionary time, males have not had as many hazards <laughs> when it comes to sex since they don't get pregnant, they don't have to carry the offspring. So there may be some sort of natural hesitancy on the part of women to at least make sure we get a reasonably good mate before we have sex. So what are the type of people that would actually go to this type of camp? They were all, they were all kinds of all kinds of men. You know, they weren't uh, unusual in any way. In fact, there was one guy who claimed he had slept with more than 200 women. <laughs> and 
<laughs> it wasn't enough. And other guys that had you know, been with a few and just wanted to meet the right woman and settle down. They were really just trying to get better at meeting women so that they could have a good long-term relationship. Did they actually succeed, do you think, paying all this exorbitant amount of money to actually go there? I think they did. Uh, some of them probably did uh, improve some of their skills in being able to talk to women. Some of the things that, that they discussed, I actually looked into for a column and, and interviewed psychologists about whether some of these things might work. And it, it turns out there are actually quite a few experiments that use things like speed dating to figure out, well, what uh, is the magic formula for attraction? And one of the techniques they teach these guys is to kind of hold back, not to get too much into a woman's face and to kind of play a little hard to get. And it turns out and that there are studies that show that people have a pretty good innate sense of who is fairly picky and who is a little too eager and gravitate toward those who are pickier. How does this compare with the males in the rest of the animal kingdom? You know, that, I mean, that was one of the fun things about the book was kind of looking at humans in a, in a bigger context. And males are actually very interesting sex because they face a kind of a universal issue, which is that they're trying to get their sperm out there and often invest less in the offspring than the females and therefore there's they they have to work a little harder sometimes to get sex and so there, there are all kinds of different strategies from being monogamous and a good parent to growing beautiful feathers to being the alpha male and beating up on other males and humans are, are a little more complex than other animals and that we combine a lot of those things and we have a certain amount of uh, possibly we're a little less hardwired, a little more in control of our own actions. But you can sort of see these kind of common motifs being played out through the animal world. Uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, in your book you talk about why should there be sexes at all, in fact. Yeah, you know, I wanted to kind of go back to the very beginning. So when I asked to do a book on the male sex, I thought, you know, it'd be fun to find out, well, where did males get started? <laughs> I mean, you can actually have, it turns out, uh, sexual reproduction without having two sexes. You can have two creatures come together and combine their genes and be the same with no appreciable difference. The, the, the universal definition of males is that they make a smaller sex cell than the females. They make a sperm instead of an egg, and the definition, universal definition of sperm is that they're smaller. But there is actually a fairly complicated reason why males evolved, and a couple of different theories. And one of them is sort of the first males kind of cheated a little bit, just made a smaller sex cell and, and got away with it, <laughs> left the females to have to make this bigger egg. And the other has to do with something called the mitochondria, which are only passed down through eggs and not sperm. And apparently it is that mitochondria can turn out to be dangerous if they're passed down through both sexes. So it may have been that species that found a way to get rid of the mitochondria in at least one sex did better. A fairly complicated, <laughs> fairly complicated reason for the existence of males, but interesting. Right. And certainly, uh, the genetic diversity that comes with having sexes is. Uh, yes, but, and and yet you could have that with two identical sexes without having a male and a female sex, with just having one sex, or three sexes, or five sexes. So if you think about it, some of these biologists were saying, well, if you had only one sex, then and you could have sex, you could have sex with anybody. There would be a problem at Caltech because everyone could have sex with everyone. There wouldn't be this issue of having to narrow your search to half the population or some fraction of the people around you. You could pick any mate. And if you had 10 sexes and could mate with any but your own, you'd still have a lot more choices. 
So that actually brings up a point. You talk about uh, what you call the sexual outlaws, the, uh, for example, homosexuals, transsexuals. Well, that's another interesting question, and there's a lot of controversial statements made about it, a lot of research on it. So I tried to show how some of these things might be adaptive in some contexts. And one thing you have to keep in mind is that people are, are diverse. Everybody isn't sort of optimized for reproduction. It's Evolution still produces a lot of different things out there. And... Um, there may be traits that are genetic that result from a combination of genes that in other combinations are extremely beneficial, but in one combination cause you not to want to have sex or reproduce or want to have sex with people the same sex and not reproduce. In some animals, there are all kinds of interesting variations in sexuality, and snakes will actually produce a uh, male snakes will produce a female pheromone, and it will cause other male snakes to go crazy and jump on these snakes. And so biologists are kind of baffled by this. You know, why would they do this? Are they, are they gay? What's, what's going on with these snakes? But it turned out that the snakes that did this when they were coming out of hibernation in the early spring would get all these other snakes to jump on them, and that would warm them up and help them to kind of get moving because a snake that's still cold is sluggish and it, it gets eaten. So there may have been this kind of interesting evolutionary advantage to putting out female pheromone and getting all the other males to jump on you. Sometimes the explanation is not particularly obvious or straightforward. Uh, well, I'm curious. I mean, you do have a lot of very interesting uh, stories about various males in the animal kingdom. Which ones of the ones did you find most fascinating? Well, one of the things I find really fascinating are animals that can change sex. A lot of fish can do this, and there's still a lot of research trying to figure out how they do it. But things, something in the environment, say uh, the death of the sort of alpha male or female in a group of fish can cause another fish to change into either either go from male to female or female to male. So in the, those beautiful clownfish, it's the females that are dominant, and... If, uh, if the dominant female dies, then a male will start to transform into a female. And in other types of fish, it's the other way around. So a female will become a male. It's something, you know, a lot of interesting uh, biochemistry and interesting sort of connections between biology and environment that go on and something like that. I think the other animals that are interesting are bonobos because they have such a, um, a human-like way of interacting with each other, They're very social the way people are, and they have great diversity of types of sexual behavior. Yes, really the bonobos are a little less paid attention to, I guess, in terms of anthropological models of human development. Usually people look at chimpanzees, for example. Yeah, well, there are a lot more chimpanzees. The bonobos are so rare and so endangered, and there's some controversy over whether the ones in zoos really reflect the types of behavior that wild bonobos do. So they're just it's very, very difficult to study the wild ones. But they are, they are fascinating animals, and they are just as closely related to humans as chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. A while back on the program, we had a fellow named Leonard Schlein who wrote a book uh, called Sex, Time, and Power, in which he was actually arguing that uh, it was really the development of the menstrual cycle that actually led to the rapid evolution of uh, human intelligence driving human development. That's, a, that's an interesting idea. I actually read a book in my research called The Mating Mind by Jeffrey Miller, mm -hmm. and he has a, a similar idea, but it really goes both ways in that it was this need for people to compete for sex, men and women, and to compete for sex not like some animals by beating each other up, but by being smart and creative and singing and making music and dancing and doing things that will impress the, the opposite sex so that it was really the survival of the cleverest or at least the ability to mate. And so I think there are, sex anyway does play a role in 
the development of, of human intelligence. I'm not sure how this other author connects the, the female menstrual cycle to it. <laughs> but you could sort of see how the competition for sex might drive, just the way it drove the beautiful tales of the peacock become so elaborate, might have driven the human mind to become more creative and more interesting and more capable of all these things that otherwise don't seem to have a huge survival advantage, but yet make us uh, so much more interesting as creatures. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a little bit earlier about the distinction between alpha male and beta males. Is that really a, a prevalent feature of human behavior? Well, it's, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, it, it, it definitely shows up in other mammals, and I think there are signs of it in humans. But one of the hallmarks of the species with alpha males is that there's usually a big size difference, with the males being much bigger than the females. And so in animals like gorillas, you see that where the males are, are you know, more than twice the size of the females. And in humans, you know, males are a little bigger, but not hugely bigger, but there's a lot of interest in looking at our hominid ancestors to see if there was a bigger size difference. And right now there's a big controversy over the um, all of our ancestors, and the size differences are very hard to tell because the uh, skeletons don't come labeled as male or female, so it can be tricky. But there are some people who think there was a larger size difference in the past and that we have evolved from ancestors that had more of a kind of an alpha male type of social structure where males really did have to beat each other up in order to get access to females. So do you think that implies that uh, humans are starting to develop such that uh, males are becoming more feminine? (laughs) Maybe, well, but maybe not feminine exactly Mm -hmm. because many sexes, I mean (laughs) many animals like many birds that are that are monogamous and where the males take care of the babies. I don't know if they are really feminine or it's just a different strategy. So they're moving toward a different masculine strategy. So I think monogamy and parenting aren't necessarily feminine traits. They can be sort of a specific male strategy that can work, especially if if your babies need a lot of care and they're not going to survive if you just have sex and run. So, uh, you know, we may be evolving toward a different different type of male, but I wouldn't say necessarily feminine. Mm You did talk a lot about the sort of biological differences, and of course I'm sure the one that uh, most people know about is the testosterone difference in males. I mean, how much of a factor is this increased testosterone in our behavior? It's, it's actually considered more important, really, than almost anything else. That it, Male and female genetics are we're almost identical. I mean, the only difference is that uh, males have a Y chromosome, and it turns out the main thing the Y chromosome does is turn on testosterone early in development, which then sets the whole fetus going toward maleness and that's why you can have women who have a Y chromosome if there's something wrong with their testosterone receptors or various defects that can make testosterone not work right then they'll just grow up as females so testosterone is really kind of the key to masculinizing a male fetus and then it also seems to masculinize the brain in some way it does make brain development go slightly differently so it's it's pretty important. <laughs> it plays a pretty big role. And women who who want to change their sex from female to male later in life take testosterone. And they you've probably seen them and didn't know. You know they can look pretty convincing. I interviewed one for the book, and he had a very masculine voice. I saw a picture of him. I never would have guessed he used to be a woman. And he used to be a very attractive woman too. <laughs> he wasn't a masculine woman, so it was it's really remarkable. Uh, well, it is incredible. You know, I'm curious, uh, having gone through uh, all these different investigations, and you do have a chapter titled, Are Men Scum? <laughs> yeah. Are we? <laughs> well, I did. I think uh, in, in the end of that chapter, I did conclude, no. But 
partly because I don't think that promiscuity necessarily makes somebody scummy. <laughs> so, and wanting sex, having a high sex drive, and even wanting a lot of sex partners doesn't necessarily make somebody scum. So, I mean, I think people are people are honest about what they want and what they plan to do in their lives, and that uh, it shouldn't automatically label them as scum. So there should, and also there are there's so much variety out there from men who are completely monogamous who just want to have one partner and they're perfectly happy to guys like one of the ones I met in the boot camp who had been with 200 and just wanted to keep going. <laughs> so, so there's uh, it's really hard to label all men as, as anything. What do you think is maybe a good take-home message for uh, everyone regarding the uh, differences in male and female behavior? Well, really that males are not as simple as people thought. They're really very interesting sex. And that there are many, many different ways to be a male and many, many different types of males out there that we tend to get, we tend to stereotype men a lot. It's still you know, politically okay to do that. And women are always considered sort of the more interesting, complicated sex. But it's not really the case. <laughs> men are actually just as complicated, just as interesting, and just as varied in their behavior as women. You have been writing this column for a while, Carnal Knowledge, and of course it led to the book. Uh, how did you yourself become interested in uh, in this whole issue? Well, some of it was, you know, I'd been a science writer for many years, and I had kind of thought it would be fun to write a column as opposed to just news stories. Columns give you the chance to put a little more of your own personality into things. It seems like there are fewer and fewer science columns out there. I had been sort of lobbying to do a science column. Actually, the, one of the editors at the Inquirer wanted a sex column, so I was <laughs> I kind of went back and forth, and eventually I created, I sort of wrote up this proposal for something that was kind of a hybrid between the two that wouldn't, I wouldn't, didn't want to offer advice because I felt like I'm a journalist, you know, I'm not a, a, a counselor or a psychologist, but I can find out the answers to things. So it, it, it was born of a kind of a compromise between my desire to do a science column and the paper's desire to do something with sex. We were looking for kind of a fun, interesting way to, to package popularized science writing. Well, it certainly is that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I think sex is always a, a very uh, appealing topic to science writers like me because it, there is a surprising amount of science that you can apply to it, and it is something that people tend to be automatically interested in. It certainly is very interesting. It shows the new book, which, of course, is uh, The Score, How the Quest for Sex Has Shaped uh, the Modern Man. Uh, Ms. Flan, <laughs> I do want to thank you for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. And you were just listening to Ms. Faye Flam discussing male sexuality. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
we're ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic stud or spud. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're a stud or a spud and maybe a little reason why. Ms. Flam, are you ready to play the game? I uh, guess I'm ready as I'll ever be. Okay, here we go. Person number one, stud or spud, Apple founder Steve Jobs. I would have to say he is a stud because just being a successful entrepreneur, it makes a man very appealing. <laughs> you know, money is good, success is good, entrepreneurial skills are good. It's really uh, the iPods are nice. <laughs> and the iPods are right. We can thank him for our iPods. So <laughs> definitely have to say stud for him. All right. Uh, number two is the Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke. I would have to say stud, too. <laughs> I mean, power is always a little, positions of authority and power are always kind of appealing. Hopefully he's wielding it correctly, though. Yeah, so I'm not sure if that's always a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, somehow it seems like men with power have appeal whether or not they use it well, unless they they become complete scumbags. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number three is the pop star Michael Jackson. Oh, that's an interesting <laughs> one. Gosh, I don't know what to say. I mean, I know a lot of women think he's really hot, but I think, you know, all those sort of rumors about the boys, and so that's <laughs> not good. <laughs> that is a tough one. I, I hate to call a guy a spot one. I don't really know if all of that <laughs> stuff is true about... <laughs> can I be neutral? We, yeah, we can take a middle ground answer on that. <laughs> all right, number four is quarterback Brett Favre. Oh, stud. Get quarterback goes without saying. Sure, right? sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and finally, number five is the president of the United States, George Bush. Oh boy, that is another one that puts me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> My first reaction is, of course, to say complete spud. <laughs> <laughs> As is many people's, I think. <laughs> Yes, but that may be um, my personal opinion, though. I think in that case, we are talking about wielding power in, a, in, a, in such a negative way that um, I don't think he's considered much of a catch. <laughs> though, you know, I don't know him personally, and I don't really know, um, but I guess I'll have to give him a tentative spud. Okay, well, we'll have to pass that on to Laura Bush then. <laughs> yeah, she, I'm sure she disagrees. <laughs> All right. Well, Ms. Flam, I do want to thank you very much for sticking around playing the game. And, okay. And, of course, uh, the book, again, is The Score, How the Quest for Sex Has Shaped the Modern Man. Thank you very much again for joining okay. us. Okay. Well, thanks, Charles. It was all great. All right. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. And that's all for this week's episode of the Grok Science Show. Uh, we'll be back next week with more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at the Grok Science Show, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>